This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 61. My guest this week is Cameron Hurley, who is the author of, among other things, the essay collection, The Geek Feminist Revolution, which contains the Hugo Award-winning essay, We Have Always Fought. She is also recently written the novel, The Stars Are Legion, a standalone space opera, which was published in 2017. She's the author of the epic fantasy series, The Worldbreaker Saga, comprised of the novels Mirror Empire, Empire Ascendant, and The Broken Heavens. Additionally, her first series, The God's War Trilogy, which includes the books God's War, Infidel, and Rapture, is a science fiction noir series, which earned her the Sidney J. Bounds Award for Best Newcomer and the Kitschy Award for Best Debut Novel. Her short fiction has appeared in Popular Science Magazine, Lightspeed Magazine, Years Best SF, The Lowest Heaven, and Meeting Infinity. She has also written for The Atlantic, Entertainment Weekly, LA Weekly, The Village Voice, Bitch Magazine, Huffington Post, and Locust Magazine. So obviously Cameron has written for a variety of outlets and has an incredible array of publishing experience. I wanted to have her on to talk about writing as a feminist and also writing fiction versus writing nonfiction. And it was an incredible conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. So here we go with Cameron Hurley. Hey, Cameron. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my goodness. So I don't even know where to start. There's so much I want to talk about. But um, before we say anything, I have to tell you that I'm jealous because you have two Hugos under your belt. And the only reason that we have one is because we named our youngest cat Hugo. <laughs> well, that that's a really good way to game the system. I think I think that was a really a really good good one on your part. So I know exactly. you will always have at least one Hugo. So I know I know we may end up with like Hugo too, kind of like the Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just keep going. But I want to talk about Geek Feminist Revolution, of course, mm-hmm. um, because uh, this is a ridiculous comparison because. Your writing is of a much higher caliber than this, but I just have to confess that about a week and a half ago, I went and saw Wonder Woman and I couldn't sleep until yeah. two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. because of the, um, there, it's obviously a flawed movie, but the fact that it was asking questions about tropes in ways that you think, oh my God, I've been watching movies that play into this the whole time. It's like the llama phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I really want to know what your thoughts are on that. And I also want to talk about Stars Are Legion because that's really exciting too. And all kinds of other stuff. So cool. I'm just throwing the spaghetti at the wall right at the beginning. But <laughs> right at the beginning. Like, what did you think about Wonder Woman? I feel like I have I, to ask you this. I know. You know, I didn't go see Wonder Woman. Oh, you didn't? Horrible. I know, right? Like everyone's like, what are you talking about? I'm really burned out on superhero movies. Fair and enough. still, and everybody said, they're like, it's really good, but it also is flawed. And I'm just like, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't want to watch a flawed movie. It is cool because it's like women kicking ass and taking names and, and all that great stuff. Um, but it's also where I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know if I can. Um, it was like, it's like, you know, when I went into Star Wars, right? The, the new Force Awakens. And you're you're real tight the whole time because you're so anxious. You're like, oh, God, you're waiting for them to screw up, right? Where you're just yeah. like, please don't screw up. Please don't screw up. And it's almost a stressful experience now to go to the movies where I'm so terrified that people are going to screw it up that I almost can't enjoy myself 
unless I know that it's going to be really good. Like the reason I went and saw Mad Max Fury Road is because it made a bunch of men's rights activists really angry. Yep. And I knew I was going to like it. I was like, oh, thank God. I know we can go see this and I'm going to enjoy it. But yeah, no, I, I actually haven't seen it. So, but if there are specific tropes that it deals with that you're just like, we have to talk about this trope. It really pisses me off or whatever. Then yeah, totally. I'm, I'm down with that. Well, I think the thing that was striking to me, and it made me think about it in, you know, stuff you were talking about in Geek Feminist Revolution, Mm -hmm. is that she kind of starts out, you know, she's on the island of the Amazons, there's no men there, they're doing everything that women do, kind of like your women, you know, we have always fought. Um, All the women are training, they're badasses, they're on horses, they're, they're, they're fighting, they're doing all their stuff. And so that's her entire reality. And then she leaves and she's like in World War One, England. And right. tries to walk into parliament. And they're like, oh, my God, a woman, you know. And she's <laughs> like, why? I don't know. What, what is the problem? Yeah. Like, I don't understand. And just to see somebody who had been in a situation where that was something you never had to think about yeah. enter into a circumstance where it's everywhere sort of mm-hmm. like made my brain go like, oh, my God, this is even more a part of our reality every day than you even yeah. think it is. No, it's what's actually really scary about systems of oppression is how much it seems like it's normal, right? Exactly. Um, and that's that's one of the wonderful things about science fiction and fantasy and why I love it so much is it has that ability to take us out of what we consider to be normal and put us somewhere else and say, okay, is it really that that is human nature or is it actually completely abnormal and it's totally a system that we um, made up? Um, Joanna Russ has a, uh, a good short story. Oh, what's it called? It's about while away, uh, but it's at all women planet. And yeah, the men show up basically men show up and they're like, Oh, this is so basically we're going to liberate you from yourselves. And it's like, you know, as the reader, like it's a sick, it's a sick story to read because you know, what's going to happen. Cause it's that same thing. They're doing other things. They are having duels for one another's love. They're, you know, fixing all of the roads. They're uh, going, being in parliament. It's not a big deal. It's like, they don't even think about it. They have they don't even have to think about the fact that they're female um that they have you know bodies that are coded female and uh it's it's very it's very um sad <laughs> it's very sad when you know you they have to come into you know, our own world when we realize these how oppressive these systems are uh and how we do how they did get so ingrained within us uh, and you look at this of course with race as well where until you actually stand outside of it and look at something that's different and you go oh shit this is horrible what are we doing um so yeah so it's uh it, it that's why I love writing the things that I write. I, I love showing people how different things can be because I think it does make us look back and realize how odd our own societies are. Definitely. I mean, I think that's something I love. I mean, it's sort of like taking the things I love about travel and, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. go, so, oh, look, this is different. This could be different mm-hmm. here. And it kind of multiplies it by a factor of depending on how far you go with science fiction is really amazing. I mean, I love something you wrote, which I'm probably going to bungle how you worded it, but that you're the most self-aware misogynist, you know, when you were trying to write in a society that doesn't have those conventions, but all of the tropes still kept coming up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As I was... uh... I was I was absolutely one of the biggest misogynists that I knew growing up. Um, you know, women misogynists is a thing. I mean, we're, we're taught. And in fact, a lot of us is growing up, we didn't, you know, a lot of, oh, I'm a tomboy. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of those girls. You know, there's, because you see in movies and TV, those girls are the ones who are, you know, ancillary to the story. You want to be 
someone who's active and who goes out and has adventures and all those things. So I must not really be a woman. Um, and I think a lot of us, uh, you know, the, the tomboy, um, you know, group of folks were just like, this is, this really sucks. And I'm, I'm a human, damn it. I'm not a woman, I'm a human. And as you start to go out into the world, you know, my parents always told me, oh, everybody can be equal. A woman can be president, you know, all of this bullshit. And you're like, oh, okay, great. And then you go out into the world and people treat you like a woman, you know, and, and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, you are within this society, you're within this system and you have to figure out ways to, you know, to, to navigate within it. And so once I understood it, it actually got easier that actually that drove me to feminism was saying, wow, this is not, you can't just be like, well, I'm equal. <laughs> and then be equal. Like everybody be cool. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's, it's cool. Right. Um, because other people are like, uh, that's not, no, I'm going to treat you the way that stories and that, uh, uh, all of these things say that I should treat you, that you should be treated. And so we actually have to go out and we have to physically, you know, fight to, to sort of change not only the rest of the world's interpretation, but also our own. Uh, and that's that was very difficult for me. And it's uh, been not only throughout my life, but again, as you said, throughout my own writing, where I have to be incredibly aware of it. Uh, why do I always default to, you know, oh, the spear carriers in every scene? Oh, here's the the bartender as a man and oh, the clerk is a man and the whatever is a man. I should be thinking 50-50. In fact, more than 50-50. There's like, what is it, 52% of the world is female. I should be, if there was no such thing as, you know, this, these crazy systems, um, I should be thinking immediately, oh, okay, 52% of all of my, you know, characters are going to be female because that's the way, that's reality. <laughs> that's real, that would be realistic. But it was the same thing again when I went and looked at um, female fighters, especially uh, in resistance movements, where through, across the board, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, you would see 20 to 30% of resistance movements were composed of women, uh, women fighters. Like, they were out there in the jungles doing stuff. Uh, and then when you look at the our actual movies about resistance fighters, you know, Yeah, there's like maybe one, one woman. Yeah, yeah, one in five or one in four. And if you're not seeing that on the screen, then that is not realistic. Right. We everyone, you know, goes on and on about realism. And it's like, no, actually, what you're seeing is the perpetuation of a false uh, a false narrative about uh, about how the world works and about reality. It's all completely made up. So it's, uh, it's it gets to all of us. We all think we're above it. But, you know, I work in marketing and advertising and I can tell you right now, <laughs> we're all we're all heavily, heavily influenced by this by stories because we're literally that's how our brain that's that's what makes up our consciousness is our ability to tell stories and and create narratives. So when you manipulate those and when you play with those and when you present only certain narratives to people, uh, you are literally creating their reality. And uh, and so I take I take a lot of I, I realize that what I do is very important, and I take a lot of responsibility for the the words that I put onto the page because I understand how important stories are to people. So I, if we could go back to the beginning, because a lot of people listening are kind of not just readers, but also writers and working on the process. I am really interested in how you went from a historical studies degree to a master's in history studying resistance movements to writing science fiction. If you can <laughs> say something, I mean, I love it. And I, I, I can draw my own line, but I'm more interested in hearing yours about how you transition between those points. Sure. I have been writing forever. Um, I think I started writing when I was 12. Uh, I've been writing stories. I published my first story when I was 15. Yeah, my first nonfiction when I was 15, 
my first fiction piece when I was 17. So I've been writing for a very long time. I went to the Clarion West Writers Workshop, which is kind of like the boot camp of science fiction fantasy writing, when I was 20. Um, so I had always written fiction, but there's no money in fiction. <laughs> there's no money in fiction. So I knew if I was going to go out and, and uh, my parents insisted absolutely that I had to get a degree. I said, well, great. I want to go to Alaska. Uh, so I got a one-way ticket to Alaska because why not? Amazing. And I realized, I, never, I realized I needed to, if I wanted to be a writer, I needed to, first of all, find a way to support myself. But then most importantly, I needed to get more stories and more experience uh, in my own life. So I initially, I think I went into broadcast journalism as my, as my, for, for my degree. And I said, and then even back then, even this was 99, I think it was very clear that journalism was about entertainment and getting clicks not at the time clicks but getting eyeballs and I want I was interested in the truth I was like I want to know about the truth I want to know real things I don't want to uh, be in, influenced by these other things and so I said well you know what there's not a lot of money in this either but I want to get a history degree I, I'm gonna write anyway why would I get an English degree I'm just gonna write things and read things so I want to do something and be exposed to things that I wouldn't have normally been exposed to uh, and I love stories uh, about history. And really, that's what history is. It is. Really great historians will just tell you the stuff like it's a story. And it's absolutely wonderful. So I got uh, interested in that. And I got, I don't remember how I got into resistance movements. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, I thought it was cool, I guess. It is uh, cool. I agree yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah. And then when I went to Clarion, uh, there was a writer there who was actually from South Africa and he said, hey, you know, if you're ever interested in getting a master's degree, you should totally come down to South Africa. You know, they're accredited universities, come to Cape Town or Durban or whatever. I said, well, that's interesting, but I have no money. And uh, it turned out I went and saw a, a grandfather of mine who I hadn't talked to in a long time. And he said, well, you know, if you want to get a master's degree now that you've paid for your undergrad, he's like, I'll pay for it. And I was like, oh, well, shit, I guess I'm getting a master's degree. I guess so. <laughs> I guess, Amazing. I guess I'm going. You have to do it, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and I, again, and he didn't care what it was in. And I was like, I really love this, um, love pursuing this. I was really fascinated with conflict and with war. I've read tons about war and resistance. So I, uh, I ended up in South Africa doing that stuff. So, uh, and throughout this entire period, I was writing science fiction. Um, I was writing and publishing short stories on and off. I, I didn't, I didn't publish a lot. I think in my early twenties, the, the book that I finally, that finally hit, I was 24. I started writing God's War, um, my first novel, and that didn't come out actually until 2011. So it was a very long, circuitous route to finally getting that one published. So, um, and then again, I was paid ten thousand dollars for it. So it was like <laughs> you have to big do money, else. yeah. I know, right? But luckily, you know, doing all of this writing was was really good for me because at my other jobs, when you get admin jobs and desk jobs and temp jobs. People were like, hey, I need a press release written or, hey, I need this book, uh, this um, book layout edited. I need all these sorts of writing things that it's like because I wrote all the time, it was just sort of a natural thing. And uh, that's actually what led me to becoming a marketing and advertising copywriter, which actually pays money. So that's good. <laughs> so that it really good. it does help when you're not like desperate to, to not living in a to garret think about it. Yeah. <laughs> No, when I was living in South Africa, I lived in a a one-bedroom apartment that was filled with cockroaches. 
and it was like $150 a month or something. And it was, you know, no air conditioning, you know, and it's on the Indian ocean and I, and I, you know, sitting there smoking cigarettes, writing my novel, you know, just like, you know, drinking two bottles of wine. I was like, well, I'm living the life. And I'm like, this kind of sucks. <laughs> like, this, this is overrated. This living in a garret. <laughs> yeah. I think it's not so much the garret as the cockroaches that would have yes. done me in. Oh God. Yeah. It was, it was bad. That's, that's how it, how it ended up. I didn't like, I didn't like it. I, I lived the Garrett life and said, I need to sell my soul to advertising because I need to make some money. (laughs) I think that's an important thing to, to, to acknowledge though. I mean, you have won, you know, best debut novel, Sydney J. Bounds award, two Hugo Mm -hmm. awards and a locust award. And you still need a day job, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think people need to, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you got Patreon, day job and multiple award winning, even more nominations than award wins. I mean, it depresses people as all hell when I go to conventions and stuff and they're like, Oh, so something, something I'm like, well, you know, I have a day job, so I have limited amounts of time I can get off. And they just look at me and they want to cry. They're just like at your level. Really? And I'm like, that's what it is. Do you want health insurance? You don't get health insurance as a writer. (laughs) If you want to live. Yeah, you need to have a job if you want regular income. Um, and again, it's also, you know, I have a chronic illness, so I have a lot of uh, medical bills, I have a lot of student loans. I have There's other things that I need to pay that I think if I lived, if all that was paid off, I lived like super frugally and I never went to any conventions and I never traveled outside of my house and I just lived in Ohio and ate a lot of top ramen. Oh, sure, I could do it, but I don't want to live, again, Garrett living. No, <laughs> it's not. I mean, because then it's sort of like, you need to have certain experiences in order to put them into your writing. And if you're having to isolate in order to survive as a writer, how is that helping your writing? You know, and it's so funny. And this is something a lot of people hate to hear too, but um, (laughs) I would always wonder why do these, why do other writers get invited to like all these anthologies and for all of these, you know, these comic book projects and why does Marvel call them and all these things? Well, it's because they go out to conventions, they travel. Literally, I'm about to get on a plane in 12 days to go to Helsinki for the Hugo Awards for the World Science Fiction Convention. Um, and it's because you meet other writers and they think of you. It's like when you meet someone in person, um, it does help make a connection. Uh, I will never forget wearing being like, I actually said that to my husband, you know, in that, that moment of, of writerly angst. Why are these writers who are clearly not as good as me getting invited to all these things? And he was like, because they go to the conferences, Cameron. And sure enough, you know, I started going to conferences and uh, I started getting invited to stuff. So and it's not it's not it's like any sort of other bias. Right. It's not something we think about, but it just sort of turns out that way. I just got recommended for another project where someone was like, yeah, I talked to so and so who talked to so and so talked so and so met you at this. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just people want to connect with who they know. And yes. yeah. And it's, ex- it's, it's expensive know. to be known, you know, if you're going to meet people in person. And it's expensive not only in terms of money, but in terms of time. Like, you got to, it's like, oh, yeah. if you have to have a day job, you get X number of days off a year. And, you know, the whole thing is an interesting conundrum. No, it's a, uh, it, it's a delicate balancing act. Um, and, and I've run into quite a few people who are just like, you know, at a certain point in your career there, you know, and it's, it's coming for me. I know in, in a few years, my hope is I can, I can pay some stuff off here in the next few years, but they say, you know, at a certain point, you're just going to get so busy. Everybody has to make that, you know, line in the sand and say, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Uh, and a lot of people, 
again, either their writing goes right, which is very sad, or they go part-time at their day job or they quit their day job. And they just are like, well, hopefully this works out. <laughs> so, and they do freelancing. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel it. I mean, I feel, certainly I feel it, but at the same time, again, I, especially in this day and age, I like to have that security. Um, it's very, very difficult. A lot of writers that we know, um, or did not do very well. A lot of them died very poor with terrible health conditions. Um, and that's not, that's not a romantic way to live. Um, it's, uh, we have to take care of ourselves, you know, our bodies, our minds, our, um, our, our mental health. And in order to do that, sometimes, you know, you have to do the thing. <laughs> you have to like, you know, uh, find the time for as long as you possibly can on the weekends or in the mornings. I get up very early in the morning um, to practice your craft. And again, as, as you know, we were saying earlier, to travel, to experience other things and to connect with other people. And it is, it's difficult. Uh, I won't lie. But um, but to me, it's it's worth it for that that uh, sense of that peace of mind. So, exactly. Yeah. So what's your routine now? Like you get up very early. How early are we talking? Uh, about 5.30. 5.30 in the morning. Yeah. That's, that's serious. That's good. That's not too bad. I know people get up at like 4.15. So oh my God. <laughs> there are, no, so, no, no. There's some hardcore. I can't do that. Um, but yeah, about 5.30 usually. Uh, and usually in the morning I do, because there's, there's a lot of administrative stuff too. I'll do, I have a lot of Patreon rewards. Uh, I have a lot of Patreon. I do a short story a month for Patreon backers. Uh, I edit stuff. I read contracts. I send email. I catch up on um, a lot of that sort of admin. Um, so that's mostly what I do in the morning. My biggest writing times are usually the weekends is I like to carve out like big chunks of time. I'm a binge writer. So I really like to have like good six hours, um, four to six hours uh, of time that I can just sit down and work on things. Um so that's that's really when most of my writing gets done is uh, is the weekends. I like to take Friday parts of Friday or you know usually Friday night sometimes depending on what me and my husband are doing, and then uh, Saturday and Sunday. So, and you know um, I have a you know if I'm if I'm really if I really have some great ideas and I come home and I feel like it I might bang out a couple words but I usually don't just because again I go to work all day and I'm tired and then I come home and I'm like nope not doing it. Fair enough. Not doing it. So what are you working on now? Because you had a book come out in 2016, right? So are you in the middle of something or are you yes. still percolating? I'm late. I'm late. Uh, I have a book. I have a book due, uh, The Broken Heavens, which is the third and final uh, book in my Worldbreaker saga, which is a fantasy, um, fantasy trilogy. So that one, my agent basically said, I think I, tur I turned it into her two weeks ago. Most, I had most of it. I thought I had most of it. And she said, well, I love my agent to death. She said, well, unfortunately, there, a lot less of this is salvageable than I had hoped. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, I said, I love you, Hannah. <laughs> so we talked about it. And there was just some stuff with them. Um, again, I, I, I had redone the ending at the last minute. And unfortunately, when you redo uh, an ending that is so emotional the way that I had you have to redo everything that comes before it because you're now that you know where it's going you need to make sure that the entire story is going in that direction so so I sell I salvage like 60,000 words of it so I just need to write 60,000 more and then I'll turn it in so we'll see how that goes <laughs> we'll so how long how does goes. it take you to write 60,000 words like what's your approximate timeline for that 
I don't know. It could take me two weeks. It could take me a year. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, here's the thing is that sometimes again, I I've been known, I did, I did the second half of stars or Legion, but about 40,000 words in five days. Um, Whoa. At, at one point. Yeah. Right. So it went, sometimes, and that was when I went to a cabin in the woods and no, you know, internet, no cell phone signal, no nothing. And basically just got up in the morning, wrote, 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 wrote went to sleep, got up in the morning, wrote, 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 went to sleep. And uh, so it really just depends. It depends on how the book is going and, and what I uh, have going on that day. I'm very distractible. So I really like to have, again, like no, if I have no distractions, I can totally do Like Michael Moorcock is really well known for doing this. He's like, he has this uh, advice on how to write a novel in three days because, and I understand, I get it because I am that kind of binge writer where I will be very immersive. I will get into the state, the zone. Um, Catherine Valente um, calls it kind of like falling asleep. It's like this, you know, immersive state where you're in the world and you are totally focused on what you're doing. And I can, I can get out pretty quickly, but if a story is broken and broken heavens, haha, has been uh, pretty <laughs> broken for me, uh, where it's just, I, I hated it. And some of it was just, you know, that the world literally changed around me while I was writing it. And I was like, I hate this ending now. I need to have oh, some no. hope in, for humanity. Yeah. So, um, so I, uh, I stopped, I was really stuck for a long time and I talked to my husband and he helped me kind of work out this new ending that I really liked. And then I just kept writing according to my previous outline until I got to the end and the really end of my agent's like, it's just not, you can't, you can't do that. Nice try. We have to go back to the beginning and rewrite it from the beginning. So it could take, you know, I would like it to take 12 days because <laughs> that's when I leave for Helsinki. Oh um, Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so it'd be great if it took 12 days, but you know, I don't know. In the meantime, I have another book that's due after that, which is a military science fiction, um, for Saga SF. Um, and, uh, I already, I actually just started that one too. So that's, that has been started, um, because that one I would like to write quickly as well by the end of the year. <laughs> but we all, you know, you have to give yourself like these impossible I don't know. I'm one of those people. I like to, you know, shoot for the stars so I can like hit the moon, you know, where you're just like, right. yeah, I'm going to go to Alpha Centauri. And then you make it to like Mexico. <laughs> you're like, yeah, Mexico's like, fun. Do yeah. That. yeah. Mexico's great. So you have to, I don't know. That's, that's how I am though. I like to, uh, I like to constantly push myself. So I think that's, I think that's amazing. I mean, it's, <laughs> I think it's, you know, for me, just having one book going is, is plenty of intensity, but to have another one kind of knocking on the door after it, I commend you for being in that, <laughs> that space. Well, you know, I like having multiple projects though. Cause again, sometimes when you're stuck on one or again, like when broken heavens, after I talked to my agent, I was just like, I need a break. I just, I can't think about it in my forebrain right now. My back brain can work on it. And so I started writing, you know, um, light brigade, which is the military SF book. Um, and sometimes you just need that. I, I need a break, but I still love writing. I feel better when I write. Um, and I don't feel as good when I'm just like, just, you know, doing nothing. I get bored. <laughs> I get bored. I'm Fair like, enough. after three days, yeah, after three days of like playing video games or watching TV, I'm like, I would rather be writing right now. Um, so yeah, I just, I just finished up some pages for some other project too. So yeah, I got, I got a lot of stuff to juggle, which is kind of silly, but at the same time, it means I still get more done than I would have otherwise. So No, that's true. And so how does nonfiction fit in with all of this? Because you're writing a ton of fiction. 
but yet you still have a nonfiction book out and a bunch. Of, I mean, it is a collection of essays. So were you writing like essays over time and then just said, I'm going to I'm going to collect them all together? Or was it a conscious thing to make the project from the beginning? My agent was actually the one who came to me and said, if we are going to do an essay collection for you, now is the time to do it. And she was she was very much correct. Uh, and she said, so she basically sent me the proposal outline and said, here, fill out this, 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 and this, and I'll do the rest. Um, and it nice. was absolutely her idea. Yeah, I would not have done, I was so exhausted by that. I was in the middle of these other projects and we managed to squeeze it in between these two other books. And then unfortunately we, we got way behind, which is another reason this one's behind. Um, but that was another one where most of it was, I think two thirds of it was already written. And then I wrote um, nine new essays and I did that over uh, a 4th of July weekend also at the cabin and got that got that out the door um, for that one so but again I uh, I I write nonfiction when I feel that I have something to say I'm actually I have in fact open right now is a blog post I'm working on about um, getting to the bleeding heart of the story which uh, my agent and I talked about on on my own podcast, I have a, a podcast called Get to Work Hurley, and um, we talked a lot about getting to the emotional, you know, kind of breaking yourself down and breaking your characters down, really, to get to the emotional place in the story that they need to get to. Uh, and it got me thinking about a lot of stuff. And I was like, oh, I really need to get this down in a blog post. So when I have something to say, I do still uh, use my blog, certainly not as much as I used to. Uh, but I also do a piece of nonfiction for uh, Patreon backers, and I do uh, a column every other month for Locust Magazine. So I do still have just these kind of regular outlets, I guess, for uh, nonfiction writing. Because there's usually something to say, you know, as part of the the community, uh, the science fiction fantasy writing community. We're a, we are a, a mouthy bunch. <laughs> so we usually have a lot to say. How has the response been to Geek Feminist Revolution? Because I think it's pretty exciting and just the the intro alone had me like ready to pick up a flag and start marching around in the street. And I was curious, I'm sure there's a bunch of people that feel that way, but did you have to deal with any nasties as a result of it? Not anything that was egregious. That's <laughs> I mean, good. I mean, at this point, it's like you just expect a certain amount. And I've muted so many keywords, especially Twitter is the worst offender. Oh, I've yeah. muted so many keywords. Yeah. And so many people that it's like, I don't really see much of it anymore. Um, no, most it was overwhelmingly. It's been incredibly positive. I have, you know, people come to me and crying uh, at signings and stuff going like this book changed my life. And I thought I was alone. And this is amazing. And that's been incredibly gratifying because that's why I wrote it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have kids or anything. This is my, my work is my legacy. Uh, and I love this idea that, you know, that, that kind of rallying cry, especially as you get to the, the epilogue, which I still reread sometimes to, to get myself motivated. Nice. Um, yeah, I know, right. Uh, sometimes you're ready for yourself just as much as everyone else. And, uh, I love this idea of that, of that kind of being there and to remind people that we do exist in a continuum. Um, we are all fighting together for a better world. Um, I don't care, you know, what political spectrum you think you're on. We all want a lot of the same things. We want a better, a better world for us, for our kids. We want things to work out. We have different ways of getting there. Um, but we really are united in wanting better lives. And uh, I love that idea that, um, you know, people can kind of look at that and, and go, hey, you know, you know, 20, 100, 120 years from now and say, oh, yeah, we're God, we're still doing this shit. But <laughs> we have to still keep going uh, because everyone who came before us 
uh, kept going. So yeah, so no, so mostly it's been it's been really positive. I think people always want to people always want to know the bad stuff, but uh, and I think as I had told uh, people, there isn't. In fact, in the, there in the book, there's an essay about my grandmother growing up in Nazi occupied France and. We're getting closer and closer every day, but we're not quite yet growing up in Nazi-occupied France. So I was like, you know what? We Things could be a lot worse, and True. we could get through amazing things together. I could get hit by a car tomorrow. I could, you know, die in a fire. Horrible things could happen. Or I could get shot at an event. And I think about that, too. You know, there's something I do think about where I'm like, I could get shot at today's talk. <laughs> talk I'm gonna go give in Chicago I that's a legitimate thing I thought when I was in Chicago well I could get shot today but you know what it's been a good run and you just I mean yeah or you could die by getting hit by a bus would I rather die you know at some event doing some amazing thing and inspiring people and doing what I want to do sure um so I don't really think about it that much I know people are like Oh, it's terrible. And I'm like, yeah, well, it is what it is. And so either you need to say, well, I'm got to do my work or you say, you know what? This is exhausting. And I don't want to do it anymore. And I, I'm sure I'll get to that point. You know, a lot of us, it, we all have different levels. And at a certain point, I do think a lot of people, I don't blame anybody for bowing out, which I say in the book. Um, I completely get it is that, you know, I might get tired too, but for now, mostly I'm just like, eh, whatever. Fuck you. <laughs> you know? Uh, and some of it is also, again, my, you know, I have a chronic illness. I, I almost died um, in 2006. My my uh, husband's a cancer survivor. Uh, and it's one of those things where you're just like, you know, I survived this thing, you know, whatever. <laughs> it does change you hurt, you know? your perspective. It it's like, yeah. okay, how bad, how bad can it be? It's like you hit this point of awareness that the rest of it is not as serious by comparison. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, and you cherish every day more and you cherish the time that you do have. And you say, why should I sit around and worry about what could happen instead of enjoying my life as I'm living it? Cause I could have died. I could have died in 2006. Um, I was, you know, the, you know, not, not far away. They, you know, the doctors were like, yeah, if you would have come in here 20 years ago, you'd be dead. We didn't have the stuff there to help you. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I think you just, you just look at your work and you look at your place in the world and you weigh and measure, I think things a little bit differently when you've been through that experience. And I hear that from uh, other writers who, especially who are cancer survivors who are like online harassment, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. They're so done. They're so fucking done. They're like, yeah, you know, fuck you go fuck yourself. I have shit to do with my life. So, uh, and that's not to minimize anything, obviously. Um, but it is just, you, you do learn a perspective and you're just like, you know what I've had, I've had bullies and haters after me my whole life. I mean, I was a nerdy kid and, uh, the best revenge is always going out and having an amazing life. So it's true. And it, it's optimistic to me too, that it's been not as bad as you think. Cause I think in some ways I think of the oh, yeah. response as being a barometer of society. Like mm -hmm. if everybody's like, yes, we love it. Then you're like, okay, good. We're making some progress. And you think about things that people would have objected to decades ago that now are completely normal. And I keep yeah. thinking like, we're getting closer and closer to things just being okay. And that's not to say that, you know, we, that there are not setback. Progress is not a straight line. There are always setbacks. There's always a backlash. And I think that we do sort of get, it is um, tempting, I guess, to get, complacent I guess and just go well of course it's progress and it will just progress and it's like no no you have to fight because there's a whole other group fighting against you 
Um, but it is true. I, I prepared much. I changed all my social media passwords. I did two-factor authentication. I went to my boss at my day job saying, hey, I have this book coming out. It's quite possible we could get a barrage of extra. Like, I was... I was battening down the hatches. I was ready for whatever they could bring at me. And it was, you know, it didn't come. Mostly it was just people going, this is amazing. And a couple like, meh, meh, meh. and I just muted them. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that like, I mean, as you said, like there's a certain amount, like with the awards shifting, you know, at a certain point, like there was a huge number of women being nominated for awards. And then it went down when the whole cronyism came in with, with voting. But as a whole, I have found my sort of limited exposure to the geeky community and being sort of an ancillary member myself, I just don't have the skills to fully consider myself a part of it. But I think that in general, it's a pretty progressive community. Well, or no, <laughs> well, maybe I just know, um, maybe I just know, cause I know a lot of people in like the hacker community and everybody yes, there yeah. is very like, go girl, you know, and, and yeah, go hack that thing, get it, you know, and it's, it's pretty cool. But I mean, I'm, I may be talking about a small subset of the geek world. Yeah. There's still, there is, I think, I think geeks like to think of themselves as progressive. They like to think of it that way. Um, Samuel R. Delaney uh, is, is a really excellent uh, award-winning writer. And he, he had a really good quote, which was, he said, you know, the, the seventies and stuff, it, he actually felt fairly, you know, welcomed in the community, but he recognized that the reason that they, that people felt that they could welcome him was because there actually weren't a lot of other black writers there. And he mm. said, you know, what's going to happen when we get to the point where there's, 10%, 15%, 20% black writers, we're going to start seeing a lot more backlash. And it was the same with women writers. And we, we saw it with um, the Hugo Awards being gamed. Um, when all of a sudden, yeah, women started winning more things um, and people who were not white guys started being nominated for more things, people got very upset. Uh, and so it seems fine. And it's, it's like this threshold. There's like this threshold of like, yeah, that's okay. And then as soon as it starts heading toward equality, for a lot of people, it feels like an attack um, because they've never actually had to deal with equality before. <laughs> so it looks like they're losing something when in fact, and, and this is this is the insidious little secret about Hugo Awards and about uh, the community as a whole right now is that um, by being inclusive and by uh, welcoming a lot of new writers, the level of writing is extraordinary right now. We have some of the most exceptional writers in science fiction and fantasy that we have ever had, like hands down that we've ever had. You can say, oh, the, the new wave, like Ellison and all of them and their weird wanky stuff is fine. It's great. But the level at the prose level, at the story level, at the level of imagination right now is incredibly, incredibly high. And I do think that a lot of the old school writers, especially old white guys, it is true, a lot of old white guys who are like, hey, if I just come into science fiction and I just show up, everyone's going to praise me and they're going to give me awards and I'm going to be showered in praise. Well, they have to compete now with everyone. And they're like, shit, I have to be better. <laughs> yeah, I got to work a little harder. So and they hate it. They hate it. Um, and I think we're seeing that again, it's not just in science fiction. Science fiction is always a microcosm of, you know, the wider culture. We're seeing a lot of that with a lot of, um, a lot of guys who are very upset all of a sudden that they're like, well, you know, it's here's it's, we're tolerant to an extent, but once they actually have to start competing, 
Um, it really freaks them out because they never, they haven't had to compete, compete equally before. I mean, if you talk about, hey, who has, you know, really gotten this sort of, um, you know, the, this leg up, right? Like the whole time, it's, it's a lot of things are for white guys. Uh, they have had, again, you talk about, you know, walking into the, walking into the, you know, the Senate and what yeah. is a woman doing here, you know? Um, and we've had to, you know, run to catch up. And instead, you have a lot of guys who are who have just sort of this this privilege that they don't see as a privilege. They see it as normal, uh, and they see it as sort of the way that the world is. Uh, and so there's a lot of backlash right now. A lot of people very upset because yeah, equality doesn't look like equality when you're not used to it. Um, but yeah, so I think it's it depends on where in the community you are. It depends on again how many women are in the room, uh, how many people of color are in the room. It really depends on uh, on a lot of different factors. It's better. It's always better. I think we are progressing. But I don't want to then just say, oh, things are magical. And if all of you come to science fiction, I mean, there's tons of microaggressions. There's tons of issues that we still have just like anywhere else. But we're working on it. We're working on it, just like society as a whole. I think it's important. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see sort of individual discrete cultures working on it inside of the whole, because sometimes it's like in a smaller place, you can measure it more easily or, or take mm -hmm. a temperature more effectively. It's so diluted, like in the whole wide culture. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh yeah, that's normal. And it's like, mm, it shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, and again, we, um, someone asked me at a talk I just did recently, you know, about again talking about the Hugo Awards and how it was it was kind of gamed by this uh, small group of folks and so what did we do when they gamed our elections we made sure to go in and to change the rules so that nobody could game it that way again uh, and I said hopefully the wider culture <laughs> learns from what we did which is you know letting a small group of people um, hijack all of the progress that you've made um, is is pretty messed up. So you really need to get together and uh, and fix broken systems. It reveals a flaw in the system. So go in and fix the system. Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest things about writing is that, especially science fiction, is this ability to shine a light on things that are not working and to show alternatives or to show like options as to where this will end up in the future if we don't do something about it. It, it seems mm -hmm. to have a unique power to make people think about like, hey, you should pay attention to this because look where this could go. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about the the dystopias right now because we're basically, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, I'm living in a RoboCop future. So I, that didn't work. <laughs> we didn't hey, stop we it. Get Mad Max apocalypse. And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. So I'm actually kind of at this point um, where I'm like, okay, well, clearly people aren't listening to that message. So, And instead, I feel like what a lot of people felt was that because they're all this, they felt dystopia was inevitable, uh, that the climate change is happening. We're all going to die. There's nuclear war. There's corruption. There's all these terrible things. So it's all just inevitable. We're going to get a dystopia. And I feel like science fiction writers, it's important um, how do we get to the Star Trek future from here? Um, I would like to skip World oh, War III, but maybe so we good. have to have it. Is it Star I know, right? How do we get there? Uh, and that's why I, I like to, to watch uh, the show The Expanse on the Sci-Fi Channel, just because it shows that humanity is alive and, and going through the solar system in the future. Like, hey, how great is that? They're still have, they still suffer and they still do dumb things. But at least they have been able to get together to the point where they have been able to get out from earth and get to the stars and do some advanced things. I mean, earth 
uh, has a, a minimum minimum income for everyone on Earth, and Earth has one government, this sort of United Nations-like government. So there are things that they're doing in there where it's like, yeah, that's different. Hey, we could do a different thing. And yeah, are there still horrible things? Sure, because humans are humans. But also it shows a different type of future than a dystopia, which is we are all just Mad Max in the desert um, wandering around eating each other, uh, which kind of gets old. So I would love to see more of that sort of future is this um, this look of how do we get from this place we're at to these different more complex, more hopeful, as opposed to just being like, hey, we're going to go back to banging rocks and sticks together because we're so stupid. And I'm be like, no, we are smart enough to overcome a lot of these things. We'll make new problems, and that's new and exciting to talk about. But hey, let's talk about how we can actually work together to build and create brand new, amazing futures and still have problems and conflict attention because we write stories. Um, but I want to see, I want to see those places um, instead of just seeing a wasted blasted earth. <laughs> I, I would too. So maybe yeah. we can put a request out, please write some optimistic solution focused sci-fi. Yes. We would like to read <laughs> yes. that. Give us something to do other than, you know, die. Of... Other than, yes, other than die in climate change or die in nuclear war. Yeah. Or die in a giant flood, you know, something. Yeah. We would like a more active role to play. Yes. And I guess at the same time, I think just more writing is good as well. Because I think the more people share what's going on, then the more we're likely to come up with different oh, perspectives. Yeah. No, I find that, uh, again, incredibly powerful is how do we... All, especially, you know, science, science fiction, right? I mean, we're, we're all inspired by the things we read and the things, again, the, the traveling and all of that. But it is great sort of to see this conversation that different generations of writers are having, inadvertently or not, uh, with one another in their work. And I, yeah, I would love to see um, more of that, certainly. Well, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and talking about all of this. I am very excited to get into all of these. And I hope that... Um, I hope that it's closer to the 12 day mark as you, <laughs> rather than the 12 month mark Thank as you. you're yes. <laughs> wading through some revisions, but it sounds like the ending was worth it. I, it was, it really was. Uh, I would rather, and again, the, the thing that you always have to keep in mind, and uh, I've been told this from several other writers is, you know, you can turn a book in on time and you'll be on time once, but if you turn in a crappy book on time, um, it's going to be crappy forever. <laughs> <laughs> so might as well wait no one will remember in 20 years whether or not i turned it in on time they'll remember whether or not it's a good book that so, uh, is fair. so yeah i think it's worth it <laughs> absolutely well keep us posted and um, hopefully we'll talk to you again great thank you so much thank you for listening to the secret library podcast the show is produced by me caroline donahue and frederick barry mcwilliams jr my tireless audio engineer to get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.